My network has been priceless for me. And that's just, again, you're coming back to what you were saying about sort of being a Glaswegian. It's just sort of talking to everybody and anybody at the same level, like, you know, not treating anybody any different and just having that personal relationship because that will open up doors because... You know, even if you build a network and doesn't get you anywhere, it's just nice to sort of know people and learn from them because that can then ultimately help you. The network is crucial, both, as you say, in career development and in growing a small business. On today's episode, I'm delighted to welcome our very first guest to the Audience Growth Podcast. And unusually for this podcast, today I won't be interviewing a business owner nor a female founder, but someone who has definitely earned his marketing stripes. Gavin Quirk has risen through the ranks across creative roles spanning marketing, operations, business development and sales, always with a consistent focus on enhancing consumer experience. Having started out at Diageo, followed by Disney, Gavin is now based out of LA, where he's currently Head of Asset Operations, Global Creative Production at Netflix. Gavin, thank you so much for joining me and welcome to the show. Can I ask you to give a brief introduction to yourself and a wee outline of your career to date? Absolutely. So my name is Gavin Quirk. I'm currently the Head of Asset Operations at Netflix, based out of LA. Been with Netflix for about four years in sort of various operational roles. Prior to that, I was with Disney for 12 years, where I was doing roles in London in the marketing for the studio. And that's what eventually took me over to LA, where I was heading up international marketing for the studio over here. And prior to that, I started my career at Diageo, working initially in a sales role and then moved into marketing. First, Jose Cuervo Tequila, and then latterly Guinness before making the very strange leap from marketing Guinness to marketing Hannah Montana DVDs at Disney. So it's been a bit of a whirlwind, but, you know, very grateful. You know, I've worked with some huge brands and some huge companies in some really fun cities. Obviously, I would describe you as pretty much a typical Glaswegian, really personable, really friendly, sociable. A Ouija. <laughs> a Ouija. <laughs> Didn't know if I was allowed to say that. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a compliment. But obviously, your career success is anything but typical. What would you say have been some of the key factors that have enabled you to get so far in your career? You know, I think about this when people talk about my career today. And although like on the surface, it looks very shiny and very, you know, exciting, but there were some sacrifices along the way. Like, so I went to Strathclyde Uni in Glasgow, but I left Glasgow when I was 23 and moved to London, you know, not knowing anyone in this big, scary city. And I was there for eight years. And I moved to LA and again, didn't know anyone, big sort of scary thing. And in between those kind of things, I, I did a little stint in Australia. I went to Manchester for a placement. So I think I made big choices, which could be perceived as sacrifices, which ultimately led to me having a good career because that opens up doors, of course. So I think that's it, like, you know, making sacrifices, taking chances. And I think as much as you possibly can, just staying true to yourself. Like, you know, I've tried not to coin a Glasgow phrase, get a bit gallus. Like, you know, kind of you try and sort of like temper yourself and be true to yourself. But yeah, I think it's like making sacrifices, being true to yourself and also being in the right place at the right time. You know, a lot of the opportunities I've got have been because I just either put myself forward or I built a network and I was just there at the right time. So sometimes, like, you know, chance can play a massive part in how your career can go both positively and negatively. That's why you shouldn't take too much from either success or failure, because sometimes it's completely out of your control. That's true. But I think those two things are really key, whether you are forging a career or growing a business, making sure that you put yourself forward for things and making sure that you grow your network. My network has been 
priceless for me. And that's just, again, you're coming back to what you were saying about sort of being a Glaswegian. It's just sort of talking to everybody and anybody at the same level, like, you know, not treating anybody any different and just having that personal relationship because that will open up doors because, you know, even if you build a network and it doesn't get you anywhere, it's just nice to sort of know people and learn from them because that can then ultimately help you. The network is crucial, both, as you say, in career development and in growing a small business. And there's a lot of talk nowadays, isn't there, about growing your personal brand. Do you buy into that? Yeah, 100%. Everybody has a personal brand. We talk about a lot about your superpowers at Netflix. Like, what's your personal superpower? I'm always told that my personal superpower is that I can I put people at ease very quickly. You know, so if I'm someone who's coming in or I'm presenting or whatever, and it's a lot to do with that sort of Scottish self-deprecating humour, that kind of stuff. And I also, my on the sort of more serious side, my personal brand at Netflix is I ask really challenging questions, but I do it in a nice way. It's like, because it's like, you know, well, why, why are we doing that? You know, well, let, let's explore that. So it's kind of that combination. So I don't think I would say I ever sat down and did like a mood board of myself and kind of like, what's my brand? But I think I know what I'm good at and I, I play to those strengths and I'm also aware of what I'm not good at and I try to develop them. So I think that is in essence your personal brand. It's like, again, it's like that works in any brand you're working with. You've got to know what connects with people and you've also got to know what doesn't connect with people and you amplify your strengths and you work on your development areas to make it the best brand it can be. And... In terms of your team and maybe filling in some of those gaps, because we can't be good at everything, right? What size of team do you manage just now? What does that kind of look like? Yeah, so my team at the moment is about, I think it's like 25, I think. So I've got two direct reports who manage teams of themselves and I've got three direct reports on another team. And it's very, very diverse, you know, very broad brush of experience. And, you know, my kind of attitude to hiring is always just, Hire somebody better or who knows more than you, if you possibly can, because it's so important. My team is basically responsible for all the production and localization of all our artwork and video assets on Netflix. So it's a huge, huge job. There's a creative side to it, but there's some stuff that they do that I've got no idea what they do on a daily basis, but that's not my job to do it. So it's making sure that I've got a team that is broad experience. They know the tactical side of things. And my job is to join the dots for them. You know, what are they doing? How's that to connect other parts of the business? giving them the context that they need, but crucially not controlling them. You know, we hire people because they're very good at what they do. And there's not much point in me hiring someone telling them what to do. It's pointless. So yeah, it's hiring people that are good at what they do and then allowing them to grow into that space. Yeah. And I think it's exactly the same when you're running a business. It's identify your weaknesses or identify where there's a gap, identify the right people to help you and come on board and help you with that. And then let them get on with it and don't micromanage them. And I think, you know, especially in small business, I think it's an area of like, danger because it's a small business and it's probably a business that you've started from the ground up you have that sort of natural affinity to hold on to and like giving some of that away can be a very much an emotional journey but you got to realize that bringing people in to help you is going to ultimately benefit you have to sometimes just take a step back and that's true if you're a small business or a company like netflix absolutely i was going to ask you this a bit later on in our chat but have you ever been tempted to use your marketing and business skills to set up on your own yeah, but it's petrifying. Like, <laughs> I mean, of course, yeah. Everybody was sort of, being, I think they dream about being their own boss and everything. I always thought, well, I'd start a consulting firm in Scotland one day. I don't have a big network in Scotland that much. So, and I think that would be so important. So I often think, yeah, I'd love to start my own business. But I'm also acutely aware how difficult it is, how time consuming it is how risky it can be, but also how massively rewarding it can be. Maybe I'm just a little bit nervous and I like my free sweeties at Netflix. <laughs> You've got a great job. I'm sure that's hard to give up. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so going back to your career in marketing, can you think of any really key moments that stand out or have maybe shaped that career in any way? 
Weirdly, what has shaped my career was my biggest failing, I would say. So I was at Diageo for four years and towards the end of Diageo, they restructured and I was in a marketing role. And if I'm perfectly honest, when I look back now, I made the huge mistake of when I started working at Diageo, that kind of thought I'd made it. I kind of thought like that was the end of my journey as opposed to the start. I thought you'd made it when you started working at Diageo. <laughs> well, yeah, right. So I've been on each other a long time. But when I went down there, I was like, my God, this was my dream job. I'd worked in bars and clubs. I loved the alcohol industry. Diageo was the biggest and the best. I was working on Guinness. I was like, I've made it. It was the biggest mistake I made, but the best learning I ever had. Because what happened was Diageo restructured and the job they offered me wasn't a job I wanted. I took a redundancy package, but it was kind of like the writing was on the wall. I wasn't continuing my career at Diageo. And I learned at that instant that you never, ever, ever stop learning. And there's a degree of humility that you always need to have, particularly in business. And you got to get that chip off your shoulder pretty fast. Like when that was sort of going wrong at the Agile, for me, I blamed everybody else other than myself, as opposed to self-reflection. So when I went to Disney, I did a complete pivot to my attitude. It was, I'm going to learn everything I can here. I'm going to be as humble as possible. I'm going to grow. And I think that moment was a defining moment in my career going forward. So clearly you've been at the helm of some pretty heavyweight brands during your career in the drinks industry and entertainment. Are there any particular campaigns that you've been involved in that really stand out? The only the one that I really, really love, this is going to sound bizarre, but we were releasing The Lion King, we're releasing Blu-ray for the first time. And there's a very famous scene in The Lion King at the start when all the animals are coming to Pride Rock. And we pitched this idea that we wanted to delete all the animals from the master. Basically, when you come up to Pride Rock on the pole, there's a the Blu-ray of The Lion King. And, the, and basically the kind of thing was everyone's at home watching The Lion King on Blu-ray. We pitched this to the original animators. I remember being in the meeting with the original animators of The Lion King and said, can we do this? And they were like, sure. And it was just this defining moment. We changed this, like, this iconic scene, this iconic movie. It was one of those sort of pinch me moments. I was like, have we just done this? Have we just spoken to the filmmakers of The Lion King and changed it? So it's a kind of sort of weird kitsch campaign, but it was just so rewarding because it was just something that had never been done. You never touched the crown jewels of Disney movies and we were able to do it. And it, yeah, so it was amazingly rewarding. What about any clever marketing that you've seen recently, maybe from some smaller brands with a smaller budget? Can you think of anything? I think what's really clever about marketing these days is it's so quick and it's so flexible that you can pivot on a moment. So I saw this thing the other day, I'm sure... Well, I don't know, maybe not, but you play, if, if you're playing Wordle, like the whole world seems to be at the moment. It was the Wordle page and it, it was something like First Aiders Respond. It was a play on words to promote the ambulance service. I was like, that's genius. You know, it's, it's taking a moment in time and it's communicating your brand and your message so quickly. So it just jumped out at me. And I think that's true. There's so many examples of that. But that was the one that came to my mind, which is taking a moment in time, being able to pivot, to, to tap into a moment of like that society is doing and not much so much exploit it, but go in the back of it. And I think there's so many brands that are doing that at the moment. And it's so clever. I saw a nice little activation the other day as well, actually, that was Wordle related. And it was an Edinburgh pizza brand. And you just had to send them your proof that you'd won that day's score and get a pizza discount. <laughs> That was clever. Yeah, it's so clever. And, and you know, so many brands are doing that. They're just, they're pivoting because as consumers, we move so quickly now from one thing to the next. And if you can hook somebody in in a moment in time, you've cracked it. So we both studied marketing before social media existed. <laughs> 
As a small business owner, we are always investing in courses and training and doing the work to keep up to date. How hard have you found it in your job, in your different roles to stay up to date with digital? Is that something that you get support with or is that in your own hands? Yeah, like we obviously have, like within Netflix, there's a huge ecosystem of marketers and growth channels that we're doing. So there is access to that kind of sort of information if you want to find it. I personally am always just sort of looking at trends and what's going on. Like, I mean, sort of the advent of TikTok, you know, since COVID hit, that just blew up. And now brands are getting on board with that. And it kind of goes back to what I was saying in the previous question. It's connecting with consumers in their moment, in their journey. And that's what I think brands have had to sort of truly understand. And it's not just being on those platforms, because being on those platforms and social media, that's just the, the tactic. It's the message and it's the content. Like they go hand in hand. People just think, oh, I'll put up a social media ad. No, you've got 15 seconds to get your message. What are you trying to communicate? Who's your target? Who are you positioning against? What's your content? So it's a fascinating space and it's evolved because, you know, when you and I were, were studying, it was like, well, TV, radio, cinema, the, you know, the way it was coming outdoor, that was it. Like, you know, and then latterly, you know, there's more sort of like blog channels and stuff were coming along. But now, like, you know, user-generated content is so big. And it's actually working the other way around. I don't know if you ever saw the guy over here in America with the ocean spray. He was going down to like, I think Fleetwood Mac, he's on a skateboard. And basically he recorded himself on TikTok. And then Ocean Spray contacted him, bought him a truck, made a big thing of it. So it's actually now the reverse, you know, consumers are connecting with the brands and the brands are then coming in from the other way as opposed to the other way, which is this is the brand's message consumers can connecting. So yeah, it's, it's flipped in its head, but yeah, and it's evolving so quickly. And, you know, every company, including small to large, have to be able to connect with their consumers that way. Yeah, for sure. And you mentioned TikTok there. What do you think is next? Any tips or tricks or up and coming things that we need to be aware of? Nikki, if I knew that, I'd be sitting in my mansion somewhere basking in my, well, I was going to say in the early sunshine, it's sunny, but I'm not basking in it. I mean, I don't know, like, it's so difficult to predict, as you know, like what's coming around the corner. I mean, I know from us and from what I'm seeing at Netflix, you know, we're looking a lot at mobile. So that we see the mobile advert, we see gaming being really important. But again, that's not so much a marketing. That's more of a sort of how consumers are interacting with our product. So I see mobile continuing to explode and just shorter, more digestible pieces of content as well, as opposed to like, you know, traditional advertising, I suppose. Although traditional advertising will always remain. If you listen to sort of some of the the professors that teach MBAs, they'll tell you, you know, traditional marketing is always going to be there. Well, I hope it will be. Yeah, of course. And that's the thing, you know, there is always a blend. And I think, you know, what brands do well is how they connect those different mediums together. How does your outdoor talk to your TV that talks to your social? And, and if you can have those 360 campaigns that are truly connected, that just really hits the message well more clearly. So in terms of approaching marketing in the US versus in the UK, are there any cultural differences that you're finding you need to take into consideration? I think the cultural differences are getting less as the world becomes more homogenous, if you will. You know, the consumers are now essentially consuming the same content on the same platforms at a global level. Whereas before, you know, watching adverts on ITV would be entirely different to watching adverts over here on NBC. So I think the cultural differences, particularly between the UK and the US, are getting, you know, a bit blended. Obviously, there's cultural differences in other markets and how consumers are emerging where they are in their sort of their, their life cycle. But no, I would say in terms of market, I think now, not so much. I think back in the day, yeah, probably when I was doing my international role at Disney, we would be tailoring campaigns for the UK market. You know, the humour was different over here. You know, maybe it was more of a, a commercial message here. It's just different, but I think le less so now because, as I say, the content and the avenues are sort of are blurring a little bit. 
And obviously, we're much funnier in Scotland. 100%. <laughs> Best humour in the UK. I would even say Glasgow more than Edinburgh, but let's not get into that. <laughs> <laughs> Fair comment, I think. <laughs> okay, so you touched on it briefly, working in nightclubs when you were younger, which is something that I did as well. At one of the nightclubs that I managed, we hosted the MTV Music Awards official after show party. So I met lots of celebrities. It was a great time, early 20s. And I sneaked Justin Timberlake through a fire escape to come in and do a secret DJ set to a crowd of students. Who have been some of the big name stars? You must have met some real celebs. And have you got any famous LA friends now? I have met some celebs. The big first one I met was Denzel Washington when I was working at Disney in the UK. He was at a movie premiere and I'd I kind of crashed the VIP bit, didn't realize you weren't me. I'd only been with Disney for two weeks. I crashed and got a picture taken with him. I dined off that for quite some time. I mean, going to sound like a, one of these LA idiots, but like, you know, you will be walking down the street or in a restaurant and you just like see people. Like, like I was in a restaurant and J-Lo walked in with Mary J. Blige and Nicole Scherzinger and I was like, oh, well, that's, that's a trio you weren't going to expect. The biggest one of late, I was at work and I was just walking out the door and Brad Pitt walked in the other way and I was no like... No way. Yeah, I was like, that's pretty cool. <laughs> Obviously, like, when we're working in the industry and working for a company, you, you don't talk to, like, the talent, quote unquote, because it's just they're there for a job. But still, I still get quite impressed. But I wouldn't say I've got any sort of real famous LA friends. The most famous people I've met in LA are actually, like, British celebrities. I used to play in a football team over here, so it was all kind of, like, British celebs that come over and so we played in the same football team. So, like, I'm quite pally with with people like that but I wouldn't say sort of any big LA hitters although if my friends ever see this who are the British presenters they're not going to be happy that I didn't call them big hitters <laughs> Okay so going back to Netflix then there's obviously a lot more competition these days so what do you see as the future for Netflix what are you doing to make sure you stay at the front of consumers minds Competition is much bigger now as we know like you know Disney Plus have launched HBO have got a streaming service every kind of big studio has got a streaming service so we know the competition for eyeballs is there we just we know that of course I think you know Reed Hastings our CEO was quite open we, we compete with basically moments in time right so we are competing with yes other content providers but we're competing with people who are playing games or reading like we just want to get those moments in time so I think the main thing that will keep us in line with the competition head of the competition is always going to be the content content is always going to be key so we that's why we, we invest a lot of money in that we want to entertain the world and you know we want to do that in the best way to give content for as many people as possible so we create content that is going to ultimately make people choose it either if they haven't already joined Netflix or if they are already on Netflix they're going to choose to watch it and then crucially it's going to start a conversation you know how many times have you watched something on Netflix because someone told you it was good or any service for that matter so yeah we always want to have great content that people are choosing and then they're starting a conversation that will hopefully keep us both retaining our current subscribers and also growing our current subscribers to bring them into the service. And in terms of your creative input, you mentioned earlier that defining moment where you were able to create that amazing campaign around The Lion King. Most of the people listening to this podcast are small business owners who have got complete autonomy over their own ideas and their own marketing. How hard would you say it's been to sell in your creative ideas to the people in charge of the global brands where you've been working? I think it was probably more difficult at Disney because Disney is such a like a multifaceted company and the brand is so key to its success, right? And 
there's so many rules and regulations at Disney, understandably, because, you know, your key market is, is kids. So there's certain things you can and can't do. And it's very, very regimented. So I think in that respect, that's why I was so surprised we got away with the Lion King stuff, because you just it was usually a no-no. So I think with Disney, there's probably more rules than there are at Netflix. Netflix is slightly different. You know, I think we, we push the envelope a little more in terms of what we can do. And Netflix as a culture is very different. We empower everybody. Everybody has a voice. And if you've got a good idea, you know, people will allow you to run with it. So yeah, overall, I think my experience of Netflix is it's less difficult to sort of get things, I suppose, signed off. But what my role is at the moment in terms of what I'm bringing from a creative point of view, I'm not doing like creative development. My creative lens is, it's going to sound a bit bland, but it's like creative problem solving. Like, how can we improve our ways of working and put in a different process? Like, what creative lens can I put on that? And people embrace that because, you know, you're, you're ultimately problem solving. As I say, yeah, Netflix is certainly, from my experience, a lot easier to sort of push the envelope than it was at Disney. I think creative problem solving can be just as creative and just as rewarding as the creative work, for sure. Oh, definitely, yeah. Because I think, you know, that's that's actually what I love about my job. A lot of it's like problem solving. It's like, you know, how are we going to make this better? You know, how are we going to do it quicker, cheaper, more efficiently? How are we going to achieve scale as we move into larger markets and, you know, more movies and shows? Yeah, it's, it's all part of the same process. It's one of the bits of my job that I enjoy the most when I'm working with clients is they will bring a problem to me and I love to try and get really creative and come up with great solutions for them. Yes, yeah, a lot of fun. Okay, so final question then. If you could give one tip to help small business owners start growing a bigger audience today, what would your top tip be? My top tip would be know and understand your audience as a first protocol. And more importantly, realize that you are not your consumer. You know, you have to have a market-orientated approach to what you're, you're trying to do. Like, again, some of the mistakes I've made is like, well, I drink Guinness, so I must know how to market Guinness. No, because I'm not, I'm not, I'm not an old guy sitting in a pub who's drinking six pints of Guinness. So it's like these kind of things. So understand your audience, realize that you are not the audience as well, and have a really defined strategy. I think a lot of people fall into the trap of going for tactics before they've actually got a strategy, you know? So it's like, you've got to have your positioning right. You've got to have your segmentation right. You've got to have your targeting right. Because if you just go, right, I'm just going to throw out a social ad, it's never going to work because you're just going to, you're just this mass approach, right? So there's this quote I use, I'm going to murder it, but it's like Sung Ju is like the art of war. And it's something about like, you know, strategy without tactics is the, the fastest route to failure and tactics without strategy is just the noise before defeat or something like that. Don't Please don't quote me because I probably murdered it. But the point is you need both. So having a defined strategy where you're trying to get it and then executing on that well with the tactics as opposed to just going, right, I need to grow. So I'm going to put a social ad and just cross my fingers because that will never work. Totally. And I think it's sometimes a hard sell to small business owners because they've got limited time, limited budget, limited resources. And often they will want to go for what seems like the quick win, which is maybe get the social ad out up or, you know, get the email out there or whatever, but really stripping it back and thinking, I need to focus on these foundational marketing elements is what's going to get them a sustainable business in the long term. Exactly. But I think also it's important to understand for people like, you know, what is your growth strategy? Is your growth strategy, do you want to grow from 100 consumers buying one product a month to 200 consumers buying one product a month? Or do you want to grow your 100 consumers into buying five products a month? So because growth can come in various different ways, you know, and it's sometimes we just always assume, well, growth just means more and different consumers outside of my segment when it actually just be increasing the frequency of purchase. And that could come from targeting your customers that you've already got. So that's what I mean about strategies. It's understanding what you're trying to do 
before you start throwing out ads and socials. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for your time and your wisdom and your great stories. No problem. <laughs> My wisdom. I don't think I've ever been congratulated on that before, but thank you. <laughs> and uh, we'll let you go and enjoy that LA sun. Thanks so much, Nikki. Nice to see you. Thanks so much, Gavin. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Thank you to Gavin for being our first guest on the Audience Growth Podcast. And thank you to you for joining us. I'll be back next time to cover nine things you can do when business feels slow. Because let's be honest, we've all felt that feeling. But I've got some practical tips and ways to pull yourself out of the slump. See you then.